Barb Higgins here, welcoming you to A Thousand Tiny Steps. In this podcast, I share my stories of love, loss, triumphs, and tragedy as I continue to trace my steps backward and ponder what led to the death of my daughter, Molly. If you're ready to laugh, cry, shake your head in disbelief, or simply listen, and tie, buckle, slip on, or lace up your shoes, and join me as we begin our A Thousand Tiny Steps. Hey, everybody. Barb Higgins here, as usual, welcoming you to episode 85 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. I'm recording this episode on April 1st, which this year, 2023, is a rainy Saturday. 2016, April 1st was a sunny, warm Friday. And I remember it was as chaotic as all the days of March had been for me. I went to work at that school that was run by Doug. The night before, I had gone to get a cake and everything because I wanted to be ready for Molly. We always did a cake for breakfast. And I felt like I'd been disappointing her so much, either in the prior months leading up to her birthday. I just wanted her to feel like she was having a happy birthday. And so I got a little cake we would have for breakfast. And then I got a much bigger cake that we had in the evening when she had her friends over. And so Friday morning, we woke up. Now, it had been a typical Thursday night. I had been out rushing around. The girls had had dance. I was all alone with her on that Friday morning. It was one of those beautiful etched forever in my memories morning. We woke up, Gracie, we had had the cake and sang happy birthday. And I believe that was just Gracie, me and Molly. I had brought Gracie to school and I had come back and Molly had gotten dressed and she wanted me to take pictures of her. I stood in the doorway right around. If you're looking at me, I'm sitting right near that doorway. I took all these pictures of her with her cake and that those pictures have become relatively widespread on social media and in a lot of stories about Molly. There she was with her 13, number 13 on that little cake and wearing the pink Aeropostale shirt, I believe, and just so excited, so excited for her day. She just was so happy that it was her birthday, that it was on a Friday, that she could go to school and it would be her birthday, that she was finally a teenager. It was one of those beautiful mornings. One of the things that I missed the most and I still miss the most in the following year after Molly's death, she should have been an eighth grader. And I had to go through those routines without her. In the evening, we had some friends of hers over. It was her little dance group. And so it was Gracie and Molly, Emmalina Haggett, Emmy, and Megan Raynard, who we used to call Tippo. And the four of them, and Nancy Welcome was also in that dance. She didn't come. She had an engagement and couldn't. She made Molly a birthday card that was a poster. It still hangs upstairs. And it said, did it hurt when you fell from heaven? Molly was just really, really coming into her own as a kind person by then. She really, really went out of her way to make sure people felt like they fit in because she couldn't stand watching kids get bullied and watching kids be left out. It really bothered her. And so we had a birthday party and then the girls watched Sister Act. Now their song was Take Me to Heaven and it was from Sister Act 2. And so I wanted them to watch Sister Act 1 to get to know all the characters. And then they were going to have another get-together and watch Sister Act 2. And of course, that never happened. Well, I was dead a month later. They came over and we had some dinner. We had pizza and everything. And they watched the movie. And then we, you know, sang and cut the cake and had all of that on a video. And it was just beautiful. Molly, you know, that she blows out the candles and she takes them out. You know how you can lit frosting off a candle. She hands candles to everyone else before she keeps one for herself. And sometimes I look at those little things that she did at the time, I didn't, I didn't recognize it, but, you know, she, she gave all the candles away. She got every one. It was her birthday. They had a wonderful time. I think I got them some, like, you know, those little things you can pull the string and confetti comes out. And they screamed and yelled in the yard. And that was the first day that I started 100 burpees. And I was going to do 100 burpees a day for a year. I'm going to do that again this year. It was an effort, something I wanted to do to become fit and strong. I stopped doing them after Molly died. I stopped doing a lot of things. So... That weekend was a dance competition weekend. Molly loved those dance competitions. They really were everything to her. April began. And if March was chaotic and hectic and awful, April was a bit of a continuation. Things were coming to a head and I was starting to stand up for myself a bit. And so I've talked about these months before in terms of Molly and Gracie. I'm going to really weave Roy into the picture much more because this was a very pivotal month in terms of my decision to really go to Amsterdam. So we had gone back and forth. They had said no. And he, in his anger at me, had said, no way am I taking you. I'll take someone else. He never found anyone else to take. I believe he would have gone by himself had I not gone. He's done that before. He had to go on an Italy trip by himself. I 
believe he went to England by himself. He's traveled alone before. And so this was something that he said, if, if I didn't, you know, I wasn't going to go. And so April sort of began. The dance competition weekend was wonderful. I was actually there with Kenny and it was when we were trying to be equitable with one another. He realized that he wasn't involved enough in the girls' dance lives and all. And so he came to that competition and we bought the girls lunch. Remember, Molly was afraid that I was mad at her. And another key memory for that competition was Derek, Derek Taylor, one of Molly's very, very best friends and dance friends and school friends and theater friends. They did this jazz dance and he was like the key performer of the jazz dance. And they came out and it was just the girls. There was no Derek. And I was puzzled, like, where's Derek? So somebody said, he's having a hard time. You need, you need to go backstage. So I got on the next stage and he was a mess. He was just a mess. He was now dressed in, in his tuxedo for the big musical theater number, which he could not miss. The dance couldn't go on without Derek because he was a major component. So I spent time with him and he was nervous about his dad. And he was afraid he was going to throw up on stage. And I said, well, look, you have a hat. If you think you're going to throw up, run off stage, you can hand go back. Don't worry about it. I spent a good 20 minutes. He went out and he did that dance and he was amazing. And that dance was the opening number six weeks later in Molly's memorial service. That was an intense moment because Derek was really, really a mess. And some of it was, I'm not, you know, I'm not here to tell Derek's personal story, but he had a very contentious relationship with his dad, you know, parents, separated parents, just all of the dynamics that can go into divorce and separation, how those antics can hurt the kids. I wasn't his mom or his dad or anybody. I was just a grown up that all the kids liked and he was willing to listen. And Molly was so proud of him after that. I remember she just was just exuberantly proud of him for overcoming his fear and going on stage. On a side note, yesterday, this very same Derek Taylor announced on his Instagram that he is in his first Broadway musical. He's on Broadway. Funny girl. So Molly's birthday weekend is his first weekend in New York City in a Broadway show. I don't mean to cry, but it's just such a beautiful thing. And I just think Molly must be so proud of him. It's one of those parallels where it's her birthday and all these things are happening. But on this birthday weekend, he was afraid to go on stage, but he did it anyway. The rest of April, dance-wise, was really, the competition season was over. It was picture week. It's getting ready for recital. April at CDA back then was a much more relaxed month. Competition season was over. That worked well for Molly because it was theater season ramping up. And she was in performance ensemble group, which is the Roulette Middle School Theater Company's version of Bye Bye Birdie. It was the first time in theater that she had prominent roles and she just felt like she was coming into her own, that she was on her way to having a lead or being one of the leading roles in a play. And she loved it. He also was just unbelievably worried that she'd goof up all the time. So those next three weeks of April was all about Molly's play. It was at this time that we began the, the march to the doctor's office. The standing up and the pain had gone away, but during March at the beginning of April, Molly would wake up took her a long time to wake up and she'd get really nauseous and dizzy. And so we started to take her into the doctors all the time. While all this was going on, Doug was ramping down and sticking his claws into me in terms of extra hours after work. I remember one horrible day, it was during the play where we did all this work. I have something on my mind, we need to go for a drive. And we went for a drive and we went to a restaurant in a nearby town to have lunch. And, you know, I'm like, Molly has a play later. Like, you know, all the time I missed work, getting pulled by him to go here and go there. And, you know, the addict and alcoholic in me had a hard time saying no to a liquid lunch. And so we ended up staying there and having like three drinks and we hammered. We got back to the school and I was late. Like I was supposed to be home already. So I went into my office and I got all my stuff and I was just pounding down water, dunking on his coffee, anything to try to sober up. And I went home. And of course, you know, there's Gracie and everyone's waiting for me and I have to do Molly's hair and all I can do to pull myself together. And I remember I cried. It was like a happy tears moment where I just had such love for Gracie and Molly and everything that was going on. And we're sitting at the kitchen table. Shortly after that, Doug actually did one of his stop by us to visit sort of thing and sat there. And my mother and he would chit chat back and forth and sort of flirt and all that kind of stuff. It was, it was a nice distraction for my mother because then I could get everything squared away with the girls. And then I remember also at this time, constant conversations with Roy, text conversations, phone calls. I would go down to visit. I went down two or three times. I would drive down and stay for a few hours and drive home. Everything was just utterly ramped up. And I remember every day. So this was the apartment. So sometimes I was in my apartment. Sometimes I was home. One weekend, I think it was either late March or early April, Roy came up and spent the weekend with me at the apartment. And we went out 
for dinner in Manchester and Doug was just texting, texting, texting. I kept trying to put the phone down and I should have just walked it. I didn't like to not have my phone because I wanted to make sure Gracie and Molly were okay. And so I kept trying to hide the phone and got back to the apartment where I had a huge fight, a huge fight. And he wanted to see my phone, give me the phone. And so what I did was I quickly shut it off and I had changed the password by now because he had looked at it before. And he wanted me to give him the password. And I just said, no. And he, remember he was just nasty, screaming and yelling. Did he have the right to be angry? Yes. I was weaving this dance where I was trying to keep everybody happy, trying to have Molly and Gracie have a nice life. I moved out. I'm like, I've done it, Roy. I've done it. Here I am. You can come visit me anytime now. Actually, I remember coming home and he rearranged the living room. I had it set up and I didn't even notice it at first. I walked in and it just looked so natural. And I'm like, wait a minute. You rearranged it. It looked really good. It just rearranged it. It was wonderful. You know, I remember it was just, I don't know, in those little moments, things were so good. And then three or four hours later, in the performance. And so he came up to stay a couple of times and we just relaxing weekend time together. We actually had time where I wasn't down where he lived. He was up where I lived. So that was April. Pleasantly, it would happen sometimes. I had to be very careful because if I told Doug that I was a week for me, he would take it upon himself to stop by. Usually he would, you know, stop by with a jug of alcohol. We didn't keep alcohol at the apartment. That was kind of an agreement that Penny and I had. It was just me really trying to keep a stable life for Gracie and Molly and ultimately failing miserably. Work was okay. We had a lot of students and the, and the school was successful, but I was, I was just, the more I pulled back, the more he pulls. And I remember one night in specific, he being dub. It was picture week. And Molly needed ballet shoes. And I said, can't you just borrow someone else's? I actually should have just gotten up and left. And I got talked out of it. And it's one of my memories that I regret so much. You know, I'm sitting there with Doug having a drink at like five in the afternoon, which is fine. It's evening, but I should have been at Clark Dance Academy. I should have been with my daughter. I should have gone home and gotten her ballet slippers, gone there and watched all the pictures. And I know that I would never see them together, taking pictures taken again. Yeah, I could never have that back. So I finally did show up and we joked and laughed and even ended okay, but it wasn't okay. April just sort of marched along like that. I was really pulling back and I was still up and down on whether or not to go to Amsterdam. The main reason I did not want to go is I had left Gracie on her birthday the year before to go to Hawaii. Maddie's wedding was on her birthday. And I mean, I sang happy birthday to her and I said happy birthday when I jumped off this big giant rock. Like it wasn't like I didn't reach out for her birthday, but I wasn't there for her. And I just didn't want to leave the girls. And to this day, I regret that decision. It didn't at all do what it was supposed to do. The week leading up to Amsterdam started off with me going for a Red Sox game with Doug. And it was not something I really wanted to do at all, really. It was one of those things, again, I was in my yard in the morning and Molly and Gracie are home, Kenny's home. We could just have a nice home day, you know, not necessarily the four of us because things were awful, but I could have spent the day with Gracie and Molly and I didn't. Kenny spent the day with Gracie and Molly and I believe that they had a wonderful time. I don't know, but I went to this Red Sox game with Doug and it was just a continued glimpse into the spiraling chaos that my life was in. The Red Sox game was fine. And had we just gone to the game and gone home, it would have been, it would have been fine. But I was doing my 100 burpees. And so I had him take some pictures of me in the stadium doing burpees. Annette, who hated me by this point, saw the pictures and she actually called Royal and said, guess where Barb is? Like, I think this is the aspect of that whole thing that blows me away. Like I somehow became the focal point of all these people's fights. And in the book, Power, which talks about narcissistic personality disorder, triangulation is one of the key things people with this personality disorder do, people who have symptoms of it. They set it up so everybody's fighting about anybody. And usually there's someone in the middle that's the peak of the triangle. And then you have, typically it's three people. So you have the person and then two other people. So, so if there's a triangle that's Doug and Roy and myself, they're all talking to each other, trying to get the other one mad at trying to get people mad at me. Oftentimes, triangulation will come without the friend of somebody. The narcissist tries to get the friend mad at you and you mad at the friend. It's a way of isolating people. And it's, a, it's sort of a pretty manipulative form of gaslighting where you never know if somebody's mad at you or not. And we had four people doing this and doing it for one another. So you had Doug and Nanette. I remember hearing, I've said this, I think, hearing these crazy voicemail messages that Doug played for me where he's telling Nanette that I'm crazy and nuts and I'm chasing him and I won't leave him alone. Oh my God, it was horrifying because nothing, it was so far from the truth. All of these things were what April represented. I'm getting up every day. I'm taking the kids to school. 
I'm going and helping Molly with, with like, I made a bunch of breakfast food for their big theater breakfast show week. All of the things that theater moms do for their kids. And Gracie is full on person when anything goes. She was cast as a freshman in the Concord High School musical, Anything Goes. And it was like, she too was just on her way. You know, it was just as bad as I was there that 2016 was amazing. Molly's headaches were not amazing, but I mean, their dance and their theater and their friend circles and how they were feeling about life. All of it was just really, really coming together. And so I'm at Red Sox game and, and of course it's time to go home. Let's just drive home. No, stop and have dinner. And so I realized there's no fighting this because I'm in a car by myself. I can't walk home from Massachusetts. And so we stopped in Andover and went to a Mexican restaurant. It was delicious. But again, we ended up having this long conversation with sitting in a restaurant for two and a half hours. I didn't get home from that game until like eight o'clock at night. It was all day. And then I got up the next day and I went to the Boston Marathon with Robin. So as I said before, in the previous episode, Robin and I had restarted our friendship, much to Molly's chagrin. She was so worried. Every time I was going to spend time with Robin, Molly said, Mommy, I'm so worried. So Robin came to the house. We drove down to the Boston Marathon. And I remember before I left, Molly began saying, please be careful, Mommy, please be careful. And so we go to the marathon. And while we're at the marathon, I start hearing from Roy. And he's texting me and he's angry. So I say, wait, I have to call Roy. And I go call him. And he's screaming at me, just livid. You're disgusting. You didn't go to that. I had just said I went to the Red Sox game with friends. I did. I lied. I didn't tell, I didn't tell Roy that I was going with Doug. I don't know, because it would have caused a huge commotion. And I didn't really feel like I had a choice. I know it sounds pathetic, like I'm trying to play the victim, and I'm not. I really am trying to own the veracity of my own insanity at this time. I was just so marionetted by these two men, and I just felt like I had to do whatever they said to maintain some sort of status. And so I did that. All I could do was apologize. You're right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And I worked there. He was my boss. So there was all of that dynamic in there as well. And he never really overtly said, you have to do this because I'm your boss. I wasn't that beholden to the job. So at this point, it was on this day that I told Doug that I quit. School vacation's coming up. I'll finish the school year and then I'm done. I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not going to work for the summer. I'm done. And so then that became sort of a battle. And so that last week, Sunday was the Red Sox game. Monday was the Boston Marathon. Molly and Grace were in school. And that was another thing. The marathon's over and Robin wanted to stop it. We stopped at like a, you know, crate and barrel store. We did all these things. So by the time I got home again, it's like eight o'clock at night. I have wonderful pictures of me laughing and smiling. And I bought this Coca-Cola shirt at the Red Sox game. And I wore it to the marathon with Robin. You know, like I had fun in these escapades, but I was just leaving my family in a lurch. So Tuesday I went to school and Roy and I now are really, really fighting. And that's it. You're not coming with me to Amsterdam. I was resigned to it. And in some ways, I felt relieved. Oh, thank God, I don't have to go. But Roy also had several incidences where he was going to go on vacation with someone he was in a relationship with. And at the last minute, they didn't go. And he got stuck paying for their their vacation. I didn't want that to happen. I didn't want him to be able to say I was one more woman in his life that screwed him over. So I went to the bank and I took out like $2,000, $2,500, I think. And so I called out of school. I called in sick would haunt me the next day. So I called in sick and I went to Roy's house. And so I'm driving in the car, I'm kicking the money out, I'm driving in the car and I'm talking on the phone to him. Except he didn't know I was on my way down. We were just arguing and fighting and arguing and fighting. I just wanted to engage him in conversation, make sure he was home. And so I arrived at his door and this is another one of those times where he had that smile. So I knock on the door and he comes to the door, fully not expecting it to be me. And when he opens the door, the initial look on his face was a smile that beautiful, genuine smile. And I remember it flooded me with relief. Now I just think he was smiling because he won. You know, he got me to drive down there. Like I was that invested in him that I drove all the way down there. That's how I feel now. At the time, I just was rushed with relief. Like, thank God he still loves me. And then he immediately had a look under on his face and I just held out $2,000 in cash and said, here, I'm paying for my half of the job. I know you don't want me to go here. I'm not, I don't need to stay. I turn around and drive home here. And he goes, might as well come in. And so I came in and I gave him the money and he wouldn't take the money. And we had this massively huge fight and just fought and fought and fought. He broke the chair. He, you know, he kicked things. He, this was the first time that I was physically afraid of Roy. Not that he would hurt me so much, but that I might get hurt by something he was throwing or that he might break. He didn't want the money. Like in my apartment two weeks prior, me as affinity for the C word, that was flung about several times. 
and I just owned it. I felt like he, like I'm disgusting. He must be right. Knowing now that that really wasn't the case at all, that yes, he was angry, but I think angry because it wasn't going the way he wanted it to go. At the end of that fight, we made up and slept together and went and had this wonderful lunch and had this amazing afternoon. And in those two hours, he decided, all right, that's it. You're coming with me to Amsterdam. And I'm like, okay, no ability to really say, I really don't think I should go. I'd rather just leave you the money and you go by yourself. That's what I should have said. And forever and always, I'll feel this way. Because that trip wasn't doing anything for either set of kids. And so much of what I had done in my years with Roy was to try to do things that would keep Morgan and Teresa okay or keep life stable for Gracie and Molly. And so I would agree to things or say no to things when I didn't want to do either. So when I was getting ready to leave because I needed to go home, he said, here, here's your phone. You need to text Kenny that you're going to Amsterdam. I said, no, I'll tell him when I get home. I'm not going to tell him now. He insisted. So I took the phone and I texted. I remember almost immediately I started getting text messages from Gracie and Molly. Like, what did you say to daddy? He's crying. He's shaking. He's all upset. So I drove home and I came into the house and I'm like, I haven't decided. I don't know what I'm doing. It's not 100%. Because in my heart of hearts, I didn't want to go. And I had said nothing to the girls about this. Nothing. They didn't even know that there was a trip to Amsterdam on the table. Thursday came, and this was a day that was really, really horrific dog-wise. He was just sort of on a rampage. And I had really given him hell about, who do you think you are calling people in my life? You don't have any right to talk to people in my life. It scares me now. When I think back now, all these years later, and think about the fact that a human being will call somebody in someone else's life that they've never met and try to manipulate a scenario. I don't know. I don't know. Really, really unbelievably bizarre. But I remember being very, very stressed out. And it was Thursday. And another thing that happened on this particular Thursday is Molly got sick. She was throwing up and throwing up and throwing up. So she didn't go to school. And Kenny had gone to Vend. And so I was late. And she's all by herself. And I had just taken Wednesday off. And then that was living. You cannot take another day off. You need to have their father watch them. You have to come to work. And I didn't know, I didn't know what to do. So I went down to work and I got two boys, two of my students, and I brought them back here to my house and I had them play in the yard. I'm like, do not do anything wrong. Do not hurt each other. I have a sick child. And I remember going up into the bathroom and Molly was just curled up on the floor and she puked and puked and puked. And then poof, she was better. She's like, oh my God, I feel fine now. Migraine headaches can be that way. And it's why I thought she had a migraine. Now that I know that what she had was cranial pressure and that once the cranial pressure is even and the pressure's gone, nodules. I had called the doctor's office and made an appointment for 2.30 and I wanted to bring her. So she was okay. She was feeling better. I set her up and went after work with the two boys. Two boys were off by then. I didn't have students. I should have taken her. And both Doug and Annette were livid because I had already taken the day off prior and I couldn't just keep taking days off. And so I, I said, Kenny. I said, Kenny was Molly to the doctor and not trained to do a good job, but he didn't know how to be pushy and he hadn't gone before. And why did I not take Molly to the doctor? Because some guy yelled at me and told me I shouldn't. And so I didn't. Seven years later, you think I could tell this story and not have so much sadness and so much self-hatred. But if you're, a, if you're somebody with grief in your life and you've had a trauma and you can't get over it, this episode could just be your permission to be sad for as long as you need to be sad and to just take the steps to do it better. I know there's a reading. KK has told this story a lot about can't go back and do a mistake you made in the past, but you can do a better job in the future. And she uses an example of like, if you hurt a dog, maybe you're abusive to your pet dog and, you know, and then you've had a change of heart. You can't go back and unabuse the dog that you had. It would be nice to every dog you see. It'd be nice to other animals. So all I can do is do better in my life now than I did back then. When decision-making and being responsible and take care of my kids and putting the right people first. So that was Thursday. And I remember coming home I was home in the kitchen and Molly came home with Kenny and she was, um, she was crying. She was livid because the doctor told her that she was anorexic and that she was too skinny. And that's why she had the headaches and that she needed to gain weight. She and Kenny cooked eggs and she ate eggs and she had a protein shake. Like she did all these things to gain weight because she was determined to prove that she wasn't anorexic. And in that one week's time between that appointment and the one a week later, she gained five pounds. You know, so then of course it wasn't anorexia anymore. I was relieved Kenny told me the name of the doctor because I thought, okay, a female doctor, you know, thought that this was good. And I thought that maybe this is what could, you know, that we would finally be listened to. I don't know. 
So then Molly was fine for a few days. And this is what was starting to happen. She'd have a headache and vomit and then she'd be fine for a few days. And then it would happen again and she'd be fine. That was Thursday. So now here's Friday, the day before we're supposed to leave. In the month of April, I did another thing as well. I went and got a passport. I didn't have a passport. And I went and applied for it and got a passport. And I did that. Started in mid-March. So I was preparing for both scenarios. I was preparing to stay home and I was preparing for not being home. I remember spending some time during that week talking to Gracie and Molly about let's make an agenda for vacation. And so we made a list of things to do, a movie to see and just different things to do on each day. And in my mind, that was stuff that we could do. Or if I wasn't here, it was things that the girls could do with Kenny. And so Friday came and the whole thing at work with Doug and all that. I was like, that's it. I'm done. I'm going. And so I decided. So Friday morning, I sat on the sofa right over here and I told Gracie, I need to tell you something. And I told her about, I leave tomorrow. I'm going to Amsterdam with Roy. I've said no to several other invitations on trips and I feel like I should go here. And daddy knows. And, and she just started crying. She's like, what's happening? What's going on? What's happening? She sobbed and sobbed. And I had this rush of a memory, a horrible memory from my childhood. When my mother went away for a week skiing, she left me and went away. And I was without her for a week. And it was one of the longest, most horrible weeks of my life. And here I was doing the same thing to Gracie. And I knew it. I felt it at that time. Oh, so many voices in my head saying, Barbara, don't do this. And I did it anyway. So I gave her the money, split this with Molly. I gave her like $500, maybe even more. And I said, this is for vacation. This is to go to movies. This is to go out with your friends. This is to go shopping and buy things at the mall, make daddy happy and include daddy and all that. So Kenny wasn't working much. He was, he was around that whole week. And he was here because I was gone. And so that night I gave Gracie a birthday party because I wasn't going to be here. So I got a cake and I invited her friend Aaron over. Molly was going to have a friend over as well. The Dolan twins were like a YouTube phenomenon back then. I had gotten tickets. They did these live shows. I had gotten four tickets to the Dolan twins and this was Gracie's present. And so we sang happy birthday and we blew out candles and all this kind of stuff. And then I said, here you go. And I have this recorded as well. And, and she opens it up and it's the Dolan twins. And she's just screaming and yelling. She said, there are four tickets. And I said, well, you too, obviously. And Molly and somebody else. And so it was just this massive like scream fest of excitement and happiness. Even though it wasn't Gracie's birthday, I knew I wasn't going to be here. And so I did this for her so that I could have a birthday with her. She could turn 15. This was on Friday. She would be happy. After all of that, I went outside to do burpees, my 100 burpees. I think I had like 30 or 40 left. I did them on the lawn. Doug was outside my fence and Gracie and Molly immediately assumed that I had invited him over. Sure, use your burpees as an excuse. So I'm in order to the fence and I'm like, what the heck? It's my last night here. You need to leave me alone, please. And he's like, well, it's my last night too. I'm not going to see you. And it was just looking back on it now, I have had nothing but creepy, horrible memories of it. It was like a demogorgon from the upside down. That's how I feel right now. I just was horrified. So I did my burpees and I went back inside and I had my last night at home with Gracie and Molly. And so Saturday morning, I woke up and packed and I had not, you know, I waited to the last minute to pack. And I remember the girls were really very quiet. I was going to just drive to Roy's house and then we would go from there to the airport. He wanted me down there like midday. Our flight left at night. Initially, I was just going to get dropped off at the airport and none of this was happening. Nothing was happening. So Roy ended up having to come and get me. So he insisted that he come and get me like late morning. So our flight doesn't leave until, you know, eight o'clock at night. I think about that. I lost a whole day with my kids. So he came up and got me and I remember hugging and kissing Molly and Gracie in their rooms and saying, I know that this is hard and I'm sorry tried to make the right decisions and all of the things I was saying, mostly I was apologizing and Molly refused to want to no hugs, nothing. And I simply said, Molly, people can't leave on vacations angry at one another because if something happens to the other person, the person who lives has to live with that forever. I'm going on an airplane, I'm going away. You don't want to be mad at me and then have something happen to me and you never got to tell me that you love me. So let's, let's put it aside right now. I love you. She understood that. So she gave me a big hug and a kiss. I love you, mommy. I guess if you're going, I want you to have fun. Like she really did reach out. And as he got in bed and just started crying, Molly walked me down to the kitchen and Roy had arrived and he was in the car. And I said, look, I just want to say goodbye. So I think I hugged and kissed Gracie and Molly. And Molly said, you know, I'm not mad at you, mom. I'm disappointed. I knew this was coming because I saw your passport application. I knew it in the back of my mind, but I'm just disappointed. I just thought that you would choose us. And that's how they saw it. They chose Roy over now. And ultimately I did, but it's what he wanted. And I just, I wanted to make him happy. Another significant event from that week, I believe it was Wednesday. I brought Molly to school and I had to drop her off. And she had her violin and her backpack and all of her stuff. 
And I remember her, the leggings she was wearing were a little too short. And she's walking in to the doors between the gym and the cafeteria at Roland. You know, just walking in a ponytail swinging. And I remember having this rush panic, like, what if this is the last time I ever see her walking into school? And I'm driving out of Roland. And I'm like, what am I thinking? And so it was actually the last time I ever, ever saw her walk into school. All of those things were significant. So when it pits me up and we're driving to Massachusetts, we went to the Burlington Mall and did some shopping. And Roy's phone rings and he looks at me and he goes, it's probably Doug. And I'm like, what? And it was. Here's what he had the audacity to do. These are the people I was hanging out with. You know, people say you're the average of the five people you hang out with most. I don't know what those week made me, but he calls and he basically gives Roy, it's like conceding a victory. Okay, you won. She's going with you and she's not going to work here anymore. And so I just want you to know that she's yours. It's like they were fighting over chattel. Like I was like, I was a piece of property. I was a lamp. And nope, you can have the lamp. No, I want the lamp. No, you can have the lamp. You know, a lamp can't, doesn't have any say. I have say. So I remember just being dumbfounded, angry. Oh, so angry. And I wanted to pick up the phone and answer and yell at him. Or I wouldn't look. He just let Doug finish the conversation. And that was that. We went shopping and we went to Logan Airport and we had dinner and I have a, I have a picture. One of the things about airports and traveling that I like is that it's like you're, you're separated from reality. I remember my mother, when I was little, she would go skiing with Tom every Wednesday and that she would have all the anxiety of her life until she got past the Pentacle exit, exit 17. And when she was beyond an exit 17, the stress went away and she could be in the reality of the moment and enjoy the day. And I remember having this memory so clearly when we went into the airport, we're in the airport, we've checked our luggage, we sit down, we have a glass of wine and we just had a blast. I have to be honest about this. I had a wonderful time. We took a selfie and I'm cracking up and he's behind me with a big smile. There aren't a ton of pictures of the two of us, but there's that. It was just a blast and we got on the airplane. While that was going on, I had initially was going to bring my car down and that's just become significant. And when I wasn't, it was going to stay home. I, I had said to Polly and she drove me to the airport. She could keep my car for the week. Well, then Kenny wanted the car. So now my car was in Concord and Polly showed up and said, Barb said I could use the car. And Kenny said, no, I have the car. I need the car. Jeep wasn't running very well. I remember getting a phone call and text messages from Gracie and Molly about the car. I think they were really trying to troubleshoot with Kenny. And I think Kenny was a disastrous mess. Gracie doesn't like to talk about that week too much because it was, it's just associated with so much pain right now. You know, everything was awful and Molly was still alive. Like that, that's sort of how it was. So the five days in Amsterdam or the six days. So when we arrived, it was Sunday morning there. I remember being very tired, of course, but we just immediately were walking around and looking at things. Amsterdam is the city that y'all should go to, you know, world renowned for thought, but Amsterdam is a beautiful city. The architecture is phenomenal. The canals everywhere. People are kind. Everybody rides bikes. There are plenty of cars. There are nine bazillion bicycles. And Roy, being fastidious like that, had planned out down to every millisecond what we would do and see on given days. I tend to be much more of a plan one or two things and see what life brings. And so we had a couple of disagreements on this vacation where I really wanted to get something done. And he said, no, don't worry about it. Fighting with him is dangerous because if he decides to stop interacting, there's nothing you can do to make him talk and be nice. And so I, so I didn't want to piss him off. I remember that a couple of times. So there are a couple of significant events in the vacation. Part of it was Molly wouldn't really respond back to my texts too much. She asked permission to get Snapchat. So that was going on and Molly wasn't really answering. Are you okay? Are you okay? Yep, yep, I'm fine. So Monday and Tuesday go by. Wednesday, we got up early, early because we were visiting the Anne Frank Museum. While we were at the Anne Frank Museum, which is was about eight o'clock in the morning for us, it was perhaps two in the morning here. It's like six hours earlier. So we're in the Anne Frank Museum and suddenly my stomach hurts and I need to sit down and I don't feel well. And I'm sitting, there were the little videos and things you could watch at the end of going through the house, the Anne Frank house. So I'm sitting and I'm looking around while I'm sitting and Roy says, well, I'm not going to sit here anymore. And he got up and left. He went into the gift shop and I just don't feel right. I start to panic a little bit, like really intensely panic. And I'm just sort of not sure what to do. And I look up on the wall and if you can see me, I'm sort of pointing up to the left where I was sitting. And it was a, it was a paragraph, a quote on the wall. And it was all about how Otto Frank, his dad, buddy, knew his daughter. And it wasn't until he went back to where they had been held and read her diary that he really understood who she was and what she stood for and how valuable she was and what the world had lost. And it was the diary that really, really encouraged him to do something about it, like to publish it. Because she lived, her diary would never have been published. 
not that her life dying was a good thing, but this amazing thing came on. And so I remember just doing this, reading the quote and just sobbing. And sobbing because I just was suddenly probably worried about Molly. And I look at my at my clock phone and it's like 10 o'clock in the morning now or 11, which means it's still, you know, four or five in the morning there. And so I text, I just text Kenny. I'm Molly, okay, how is everybody? And never been to Boston and go to the aquarium and do some stuff with little Kenny. And Molly was sick and Kenny goes, yep, headaches and throwing up again, headaches and throwing up. You should be here. So I was like, make a doctor's appointment, make a doctor's appointment, please. And please ask more questions. And, you know, I was frantic. We walk around and I'm just not myself, eat breakfast at this little bar. It's like a bar. And there wasn't okay. And Roy was sort of like, are you going to snap out of this? And I'm like, I just don't feel right. Something's not right. Something's not right. And of course, Molly was sick. So that was the second and sort of final doctor's appointment with this particular doctor where she was told to meditate and that maybe she had, maybe she had a sinus infection and that's what was wrong with her. That she had a sinus infection. And here's a pamphlet on meditation, but she felt better. By the time you get to the doctor, she felt fine again. And so they came home. And so, I, so that was when I said, Molly, are you okay? Please tell me you're okay. And she goes, yep, I'm okay. And that was Wednesday, not knowing that would be the last Wednesday she'd be alive. So we finished the day. And so there were two more days, really, that we were traveling. And the last half of that vacation was not as easy or as fun as the first, because I just realized that I couldn't escape my reality, that Molly was not okay. I didn't have any idea that she was going to die. So we fly back on Saturday and I have some wonderful pictures of that as well. And I had bought these tulip bulbs. I was going to plant them and give them to Robin. And Roy's like, you can't bring those back. And I'm like, I'm just going to put them in my suitcase so we all know they're there. And so he sort of lectured me the whole way about you can't mess up. I eat stupid tulip bulbs. I shouldn't have said anything. When we landed, he was supposed to drive me home. When we landed, I said, yes, I have tulip bulbs. And so they made me unpack my suitcase and give them the tulip bulbs. And so I was furious. I came out. I'm like, now I don't have the tulip bulbs. I was just angry. I wanted to go home. So we're in a fight. So we get in the car and I said, please just drive me home. He's like, I'm not driving you home. And so we drove to his apartment and I hadn't seen my kids now. Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, eight days. And I'm like, I just want to go home. And he goes, no, you're going to spend the night. We'll have one more day together. You can always be with the kids. Once you go back, I'll never see you. So I don't know what he was really thinking in his mind. So I just told the girls and Kenny that my flight was delayed and wouldn't arrive until late. And I'd see them in the morning. And, and they're both like, mommy, come home, come home. You, you know, please come home. And I don't know that anything would have been different, but at night I was with Roy. We went out for dinner. He later told me that his plan was going to be to keep me all day Sunday and not bring me home until Sunday night. I don't know, but we wake up. We slept well. We're exhausted. We wake up. It's like 730 and I'm, I'm sitting on his couch. I go get my phone and I look at it and there are like 65 text messages, six, five, like, and I'm like, what? So I realized my phone, it's on silent. I'm like, what? What? So I answer it and it's all about Molly, starting from like four in the morning. She's really sick. This is worse than ever. Why aren't you answering? Well, Gracie's texting me. Kenny's texting me. I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And poor Molly spent a whole entire night all by herself, jumping in the bathroom. And I know I've told this story before, but I was just 70 miles away, not taking care of her. That's the reality of how I feel about right now. I said, Drew, we have to go. You have to get help right now. And so I called Kenny on the phone. I said, call 911. For heaven's sakes, call 911. If you take, if she goes to the hospital ambulance, they'll listen to her. They'll know that something isn't right. She was sick enough for you to call an ambulance. So I figured she would stay on the bathroom floor. The ambulance would come and see her there amidst all the vomit. Kenny cleaned her up and brought her downstairs and had her ready. It's like, hey, what are you thinking? They'll get her. Roy didn't want to bring me home right away. He, he thought I was overreacting. He thought it was just a headache. So I filled him in more on a lot more of the, of the symptoms she'd been having. And his patent response is, well, you never told me this. I talked about Molly's health all the time. He claimed that he knew nothing about it all these weeks, even though I talked about it all the time. So I get home and I've told this story before that Gracie's here and we go to the hospital and I'm not going to reiterate all the medical piece. I'm going to talk specifically about Doug piece and the Roy piece terms of the week of Molly's death. So it's Sunday, May 1st, in the ER, finally, we're there. Molly's getting some medicine. She tells me she loves me. Hi, mommy, I love you. Those were her last words to me. I love you too, Molly. That was our last actual conversation other than some hallucinations she was having in the bathroom. I'm in that hallway and Doug comes around the corner. So he was there all worried about his child and I'm there all worried about mine. And, and I didn't want to see him at all. So I'm like, okay, okay, well, good luck. You know, Molly's here. She's not feeling well. She has these headaches. Remember the doctor's appointment, you know. It was just the last thing I needed. It was like, are you kidding me? This is, stop. 
he was like, are you sure you don't want to come back? I said, I'm not coming back. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not coming back. You know, I'll finish the school year. So had Molly not, you know, died later that day, I would have gone to work the next day, Monday, and sort of finished the school year. Who knows what would have happened? But that didn't happen. We spent the whole day in the ER. So Kenny came back. Kenny had gone home, was starting dinner, gone grocery shopping. He came back and saw Dunn. And he grabbed him by the vest and like sort of threw him, just didn't want him around. Stupid move on Kenny's part because security immediately wanted to kick Kenny out. And I'm like, Kenny's, no, his daughter's here sick. This man is interfering. Like he doesn't need to be over here. So it just made us look bad to security. And I look now, I look back at so many of the actions, so many of the scenarios stirred up by Doug that did nothing but hurt everyone around us and specifically me sometimes. It's mind boggling to me. And I know I use, when I listen to my podcast, I use the same words all the time. Terrifying, horrifying mind-boggling, phenomenal. I don't know. I use all the same words, but it just was one of those pieces of, of the puzzle that comes back and haunts me. I texted with Roy all that day. I texted that she wasn't waking up. I texted they wouldn't do a CAT scan. I did my burpees. You know, I did my hundred burpees 10 at a time next to my unconscious daughter. I got the, I got my 100. You know, and the day went along and I kept texting with Roy and texting with Roy. And he, I imagine he was trying to come from me. It's going to be fine. You know, what are you doing? He's like, well, I'm going to go next to you. I'm doing this. I think he was likely rattling around a little bit, but, you know, the longer we were in the hospital, the longer he was like, well, you need to speak up, you need to speak up. And of course I was speaking up and then getting yelled at and told to be quiet. And so I was quiet, disobedient barb. By the time the disaster had hit and it was after midnight and we had found out Molly wouldn't wake up and now it was two in the morning or three in the morning, we came home to get clothing and things to follow the ambulance to Dartmouth. And I called Roy on the phone. I was walking up, up my street and I know I've told this story before as well, but we had a long conversation. I touched him and said, she's dead. Because I knew in my heart that she was dead. And so he calls up, what? And he was, you know, what are you talking about? And I said, she's dead. They're taking her to Dartmouth to take out a giant brain tumor in her head. Maybe she'll wake up, but they don't think so. They said if it was someone my age, they wouldn't even bother. That she's had too much brain damage, that she's dead. So he's like, you're kidding me. And I said, no. And what I needed at that time was, I'm so sorry. This must be freaking you out. What can I do to help? What he said was, this always happens to me. And I'm like, what? I have the best week of my life, the most amazing experience, and something horrible and terrible happens to ruin it all. And, you know, I get it. You're right. We just had this amazing week together, and now my daughter's dead. I think what he saw was it was one more thing that prevented me from being what it is he wanted me to be immediately. And now he's going to have to, who knows what, what was going to happen next. During that week, Doug, I blocked him on my Facebook. He was completely blocked from me. And I didn't even think to unblock him. He didn't come to mind. And I know that he had a really bad couple of weeks because he didn't know what was going on. I never went back to work. I never went back to that job. You know, I think he knew that Molly was in life support. He asked other people, but he didn't, you know, I blocked him. I didn't call him. I didn't text him. Nothing. Nothing. He was done. I wish with all my heart that he had stayed done. I talked to Roy all the time. We texted a lot and talked on the phone a lot. You know, when there was still hope the first couple of days, our conversations were sort of standard. And then when it was, when it was clear that she wasn't going to wake up, he really wanted to come say goodbye. And of course, I wanted him to come say goodbye. And I've told the story before, so I won't reiterate it in a ton of detail again, but it was, a, it was a beautiful goodbye. I've only seen Roy cry what I feel are genuine tears once or twice in our time together. And that was one of them. He was beautiful. And he gave a very, very heartfelt apology for taking me away, that he didn't think that she would die and that he wouldn't have done it had he known something bad was going to happen. And he wanted her to forgive him and he wanted her to forgive him for scaring her. And, you know, he owned it. He owned all of it in that moment. And it gave me such hope that actually maybe someday Gracie would be okay with me and Roy being together. That's where I was at still at that time. I also was 100% family, me, Kenny, Gracie, because we're a family of three now. And so when the reality of Molly's death, you know, sank in more and more each day, my desire was to keep things as much the same as possible because that would be what was comfortable. And so that was me, Gracie and Kenny sort of doing our life together. Roy drove up, said the goodbyes in the middle of the night, stayed in a hotel and then drove home the next day. We talked and communicated and, and the day I unplugged her, you know, it's funny, we have these, Facebook has timestamps and a memory comes out for me. You know, you can see when people that you're friends with are tagged in a post or whatever. And I remember screenshotting the post, but Wendy, my friend Wendy, who also lost a daughter six months prior to Molly dying. Her name was Haley. Love you, Haley. She and Roy were friends. And so at May 7th, which is the day I unplugged Molly at noon, which is the time that she died, 
they shared this funny meme about dating psychopaths or having wacko relationships. And it was like they were making a joke about it. And I mean, I guess they didn't know that Roy knew we were unplugging Molly. I don't know, but I, I look at it now and it's like an insult. It's just proof that life goes on, you know? Neither of them knew that at that exact moment, I was lying next to Molly in a bed and her heart was stopping its beating and was truly dead. You know, they didn't know that. But sometimes that memory, that Facebook memory will come up for me. And I'm just like, oh, God. A couple of other significant things that week. As I had said, Robin and I had renewed our friendship and we were not super close. But I know that Sky had gone into work that day to flips and Robin had said, what's wrong? And she said, did you hear about Molly? She has a brain tumor. And Robin, what? What? And so she messaged me and she said, do you need me to come up? And I said, no, I'm okay. Surrounded by people, I'm okay. But like two hours later, she was up there. So I just thought, oh my gosh, here she is being a good friend. And she was, she just basically closed her gym, got other people to cover and said Monday, Tuesday, she came out Monday afternoon and left Thursday. Like she stayed for three days with me. It was intense. I mean, she was by my side the whole time. And I, I don't know that I would have survived that week without her. I found out later that she had consulted with a mutual friend of ours, Lenora, who's an attorney. And Lenora had said, go, go, go. You need to go up there. You need to be up there the whole time. You know, I know what's going on medically and all this, and I'll get into that story much later on. But Robin was a huge piece of that part of my Molly story. She spent three of those six days with me at Hanover, and she was unbelievably helpful. She was in the room when we found out that Molly would never wake up. She was by my side for all those things. And what I miss about Robin is that in terms of friends, she and I could laugh and laugh so hard and so genuinely, I loved it. And I miss that. I miss that Robin. I miss that, the Robin that dump on a car in a moment's notice and go to the beach and have a fun day. She was good for me and good to me for a long time until she wasn't. And so she was a huge piece of that week. Roy was a huge piece of that week. Penny and I had a couple of fights. John Farwell and some CrossFit folks were up there and they were talking about Amsterdam. Something came up with Amsterdam and I said, oh, I went to CrossFit Amsterdam when I was there. I got you guys t-shirts because it was an exciting little CrossFit piece of my trip. Roy had worked that into our agenda that I would go to a CrossFit gym and I met these wonderful people. I did a really hard workout. It was awesome. I loved it. And so Katie was there and she told Kenny, let's go home. Let's just leave here. All of a sudden was gone. And he said, Katie's going to bring me back to Concord. I'm not doing this. And I'm like, you're going to leave Molly? What? And this was, Katie and I are nice to each other because it's the right thing to do when you're around family. But this was an example of her utterly acting out of line and truly not thinking things through. And she wanted her father to leave the hospital and come back to go to act to talk with her, come live with me, move in with me, be with me, and leave Ed Molly and Gracie and all of us, leave us, like you don't need to be here. So he didn't go. He came back and, you know, all this, and we, we argued and fought. And I just said, look, I can't, I can't just erase last week. I did it. I won't talk about it. I'm sorry. All I could do was apologize. As the week went along, you know, Katie, Katie came up quite a bit. She was there for her dad. And she sort of said, I'm going to be nice to you because this is going on, you know, and it's the right thing to do, but it's not going to last forever. It was this, I don't care. I don't care. And so she included herself in the unplugging ceremony. She was there for Katie. Well, okay. So I had my brother and my sister-in-law long, long come. And they took a lot of pictures and they were there as well. And that was the group that was there for the unplugging of Molly that morning. It was Lalan and Jonathan. Me, Kenny, Gracie, Katie, and of course, Chaz and Nurse Sharon came in on her day off, her first week at the hospital. And I believe Gina was there for a bit of it as well. The only person truly absent was Doug. And really, had things gone differently with Roy and how Roy was sort of managing things, and I'm not going to criticize Roy, I believe he probably was doing the best he could. But he was also a lot like Katie in the sense that he said, look, I'm going to back off, I'll let you do what you need to do, but this can't last forever. And I actually thought that once I was sort of settled and, and everything, that Roy and I could figure out a way to continue our friendship and relationship and have it be okay. The beginning of the end of Molly. Molly's dead now as I finish this episode. The first beginning of the end was the note in the back pen. The second beginning of the end, key day. The third beginning of the end, really consummating the relationship. The fourth beginning of the end, my job loss. Fifth beginning of the end, Doug. The sixth beginning of the end of Molly, all the chaos and mayhem during March and April, the last two months that she was alive, and me deciding to leave the country. I firmly believe that all of my decisions in all of these actions, and the fact that I was willing to 
enter into relationships with, with people that I shouldn't have, that I somehow allowed myself to be manipulated like I was, whatever was broken inside of me that made that viable in my head, that told me it was okay to be treated like that. I don't know. It's a lot of self-reflection. And maybe these podcasts are hard to listen to, or maybe I sound self-indulgent. I don't know. I do know that every time I tell a story, I learn more. And so in terms of why I started this podcast in the first place, it really was to retrace all the steps in my life that led up to Molly's death. So I end this episode with Molly dead, not breathing and no heartbeat on a bed in a hospital in New Hampshire. A week after I had arrived home from Amsterdam, two weeks after she stood in the doorway and said, I'm disappointed that you're leaving. Three weeks after she took her final bow in her play at Rumlet. And nine weeks after our first doctor's the decisions I made that put my life in such a chaotic state leading to that year in those last nine weeks and the decisions I made in those nine weeks that had nothing to do with taking care of Molly or take care of myself, I will own those for the rest of my life. I also share this story for other women and men who find themselves in relationships, people like this, who have wonderful qualities and perhaps do amazing things. I have to say right now, I, I wouldn't qualify Roy or Doug as bad people. I think they have a lot going on and I'll leave it at that. This season will continue along a bit into my continued connection to Doug and professionally working for him. My tumultuous continuing connection with Roy and how that looked in the aftermath of the tsunami that was Molly's death, my life. It's Molly's birthday. It's 2.24 p.m. 20 years ago at this time, I was getting into some ferocious pushing. It was about an hour and 20 minutes from being born. And she was 13 years, one month and a day away from dying. Be good to yourself. Even if that means doing hard things and finding a therapist and looking in the mirror, owning up to everything. Be good to yourselves and be good to someone else. Molly spent her life being good to other people, so be good to someone else. And as always, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting the podcast. Feel free to leave a review and to share my stories with your friends. Please reach out with your own stories. I love connecting with my listeners. If you want to see what I'm up to next, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, a thousandtinysteps.com. And while you're there, sign up for my newsletter, a weekly way to find out what's up in the life of Barb Higgins.